The word of the Lord from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 45, and verses 14 to 19. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God beside him. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it, and He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness, I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak truth. I declare what is right. And thanks be to God for his word. And Christians are uh, oftentimes uh, humiliated and uh, shamed for their beliefs, and sometimes they are uh, the objects of uh, terrifying physical persecution. Uh, but the text before us uh, teaches us that it will not always be this way, that God will right all wrongs, and uh, God will vindicate his people, and he will save them with an everlasting salvation. It is a good reminder to remember that oftentimes uh, we suffer because we think that wrongs uh, go without being corrected, but this text slams into us, reminding us that God will right it all. He will fix everything and make it all right in the end. Uh, here there's the promise of vindication and eternal salvation that comes to those who believe and hope in the Lord Jesus. The text, I believe, uh, poses a number of difficulties. I think the greatest one is that the prophet is reaching way into the distant future uh, of the time in which God will effect a final vindication and salvation to those who belong to him. In verses 14 to 15, uh, we have that God will vindicate us. Uh, the evidence in the text shows the enemies uh, of uh, the church coming to acknowledge that our God is indeed the only God. It's an illustration of our opposition uh, coming to admit their error. We've been telling them for countless centuries, uh, I told you it would be this way, but they have denied the church, rejected the church, persecuted the church, and now they are confronting in their own confession that you were right all along. Your God was indeed the right and the only God. Uh, they come to see that their idols were worthless 
and that only the God of Israel was worthy of praise and affection. It's instructive that the text mentions uh, different countries, but I think it's only a collection of a reminder of the entirety of every nation being represented uh, who has opposed and persecuted the church, now coming to bow before the church in acknowledgement that the church was right all along. It's also instructed that the text mentions men of merchandise and stature. Isn't that interesting? That's what our culture worships. Men of stature, men of great wealth. We find their names in the Forbes 400. We find their names on buildings and prominence everywhere. Not that that is necessarily wrong in and of itself, but we worship men of stature, women of prominence, women of wealth, people who have amassed great property. But those things, in the end, count for nothing. They cannot save either. Uh, the form of the text is uh, the coming in submission. Uh, notice uh, the prophet says in verse 14, they will bow down to you, they will make supplication to you. It's abject submission of our opposition, coming, admitting to the church, again, you were right all along and we were terribly wrong. The other issue is the content of their condescension. Again, verse 14, surely God is with you and there is none else, no other God. Our enemies will one day say to the church, you were right and we were entirely wrong. There is no God but your God and only and our gods, pardon me, are non-existent. It is a wonderful reminder of a dominant theme of uh, the prophecy of Isaiah. It is an absolute negation, exclusion, and rejection of all and every other religion on the face of the earth, save that constituted by divine revelation and the gathering of God's people that belong to him as his sons. Again, recall the text. They come, they bow down, to the church and confess again, you were right all along and we were terribly wrong. Uh, the confession uh, has a twofold reference. Uh, the first reference uh, has an illusion of distant fulfillment of some who come and who are saved uh, in their submission to the church. Now, the reason I say this is because Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 14 is alluded to by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If you have your New Testament, I trust you do. I encourage you to turn there uh, because there is a fulfillment, a distant fulfillment in the life of the Corinthian church that speaks to a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 14. The context is a comparison of the utility of the gift of tongues and prophecy. The former were designed to announce judgment on the apostasy of Israel. The latter was of superior usefulness, as is detailed by a Gentile coming into the assembly and hearing the prophets utterly disclose everything in a measure about his life, convicting him. Again, 
1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 24 and 25. The prophets speak. What's the result? He is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so he will fall on his face. That's the allusion to Isaiah 45. He will bow down to the church and worship God, declaring that God is certainly with you, among you. Again, the allusion to Isaiah chapter 45. I think it's an account of a conversion experience of a man who comes into the church and the prophets lay him bare and he bows before the church and acknowledge that the God of the church is the only God and he comes to worship that God in a conversion experience. So there is a distant fulfillment of Isaiah 45, 14 in a salvific sense of one who comes to bow down and to worship the one and only God as the prophets uh, lay him bare. Conversely, there is another distant fulfillment of this text of the enemies of the church are coming and submitting to the church even though uh, they reject God, but they are forced to admit that the church is the people of God and that the church was right all along and that they were terribly wrong. Uh, we find this uh, occasion in Revelation chapter 3. Uh, the nature of the fulfillment is terrifyingly ironic because Jews are made to condescend before believers in display of divine vindication of the church and the testimony of the church and the God of the church. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 9, Jesus says, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. The Jews have been persecuting the church. Final vindication. They will come, they will condescend, they will bow down, they will confess that the church is beloved by God. The wonderful application there, I think, in the midst of all of the injustices of the world, of which the church bears a measure of the brunt of that, uh, that we can walk in a measure of stature and uprightly because we know that we are beloved of God, that he has set his eternal affections upon us, and therefore we can wait patiently for the day in which God vindicates his people and makes all of the enemies of the church bow down before it in acknowledgement that the church was right all along as the beloved of God. Again, John is identifying Jesus with the God of Isaiah chapter 45. That's another reminder to us of fulfillment, not only in vindication, but in the identity of Christ. He is the God of Isaiah 45, and worthy, of course, of worship as the God of heaven. So our enemies will admit their error, and they will also admit our Savior. You and I, throughout our lives, know people who refuse that, but they will one day be broken, and they will admit it in condescension and vindication, and they will confess that Jesus was the Savior of the church, validating our faithfulness and our waiting for him. 
the additional content of uh, the condescension is also expressed here by the prophet. Again, I'm returning to Isaiah chapter 45 in the 15th verse. Truly thou art a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, Savior. The reference to God hiding himself is his transcendence. But he reveals himself in supernatural revelation to Israel as Savior. Again, uh, I am suggesting to you that in a future day, God will elevate us as victors and all of the oppositions of the church will be made to bow down before the church and confess that our Savior Christ is the one true God of Scripture. So God is going to vindicate his people. Again, I'm not unaware, unaware that there are many wrongs in life that the church is oftentimes the butt of jokes, cruel humor, and sometimes terrifying persecution. But one day God will fix it all, he will right it all, and our enemies will come and bow down before the church and acknowledge that our God was the right God. God will make it right in the end. It's uh, sometimes very difficult to tell people, I told you so. But that is the message of the prophet. Our enemies will come, submit, acknowledge, and God will vindicate us because all along the way, our confession of the one true God of Scripture in Jesus Christ as the only Savior will be vindicated and the world will know it and see it and confess it and acknowledge it in submission. If you're not a Christian, uh, it's something of the prophetic announcement of your life, save the salvific event of you coming into the church and hearing the word of the Lord and acknowledging Jesus Christ is the only redeemer of the people of God. That's the point, I think, of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. The heart of a man is laid bare by the scripture, and if grace smiles upon him, he flees to the only safety there is, Jesus Christ, the eternal Savior. Beyond vindication, God promises eternal salvation as a reminder of the outcome of our faith. The outcome of our faith is eternal salvation, verses 16 to 19. We begin first with the idolater and his estate, and then we will turn to the faithful. First, verse 16, there is the idolater. They will be put to shame and even humiliated, all of them. The manufacturers of idols will go away together in humiliation. That's the end state of all idolatry and all false religion. Again, part of our culture is we're all on the road to heaven. Uh, some people get there by Hinduism, some Christianity, and some Buddhism, and some by the prophet Muhammad. No, the prophet is telling us that all idolatry and all error will be shamed before God and humiliated. There's only one way, and that is the way Jesus Christ, the only redeemer of God's people. There is no other appointed way whatsoever. 
everything will be negated, rejected, and consigned to eternal punishment other than the way that he has ordained and the way that he has established in his son. I understand the terrifying prospect of political correctness in our culture, but make no mistake, the scripture is clear. Christ is the only way, and every other way will end in utter humiliation and shame. Idols cannot save. They promise I give you that, but they are totally unable to deliver. And anyone who fottles them, and included in that concept of idolatry is false teaching, will end in shame and humiliation. The errant choice has a terrifying end, shunned by God, humiliated throughout all eternity. Conversely, verse 17, God will save his people. Israel has been saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will not be put to shame or humiliated to all eternity. The promise of the church in salvation. God saves his people. In the Old Testament, his people are known by the name Israel. The prophet really, uh, because he does not have the full concept of revelation and its progressive majesty does not fully comprehend what that really means in the distant future. You and I understand that because we have the New Testament. But the prophet simply calls the people of God Israel. But the description of salvation is utterly beautiful with an everlasting salvation, Isaiah says. In other words, forever and ever. The New American Standard reads, to all eternity. The King James has world without end. It expresses the perpetual nature of divine accomplishment. None of the people of God are lost. They are all saved. They are all gathered by the power of God as the Savior of his people. New Testament authors clarify that salvation is in a righteous remnant in true Israel. Let me express this in a couple of ways. Again, I'm not unmindful that a great deal of controversy uh, over what I'm about to say, but nonetheless, we're simply going to turn to the Bible, uh, let the Bible speak for itself into what it means in terms of describing and placing a name on the, uh, or a label on the concept of the people of God. Let's, let's use the Old Testament first. Uh, Psalm 73 It's a concept, I believe, of a remnant. The psalmist says, surely God is good to Israel. And he is. Isaiah 45 documents that very clearly. But notice how he defines Israel to those who are pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. They will be saved. And, of course, we know by grace God purifies their heart. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 3. Again, we're trying to wrestle with this concept of Israel and what it means. Who is Israel? Who is the people of God? Who are the people of God? Uh, Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writes in verse 7, Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith that are the sons of Abraham. 
Sons of Abraham is, is an ethnic concept in the Old Testament, a concept adhered to by birth. But the Apostle Paul is radically changing that, isn't he? He's saying it's by faith, by faith in Jesus, by faith in Christ that you are a son of Abraham. And that was true not only in the church at Galatia, it was true in the Old Testament. You were never saved just because you were born ethnically as a son of Abraham. You were always saved and only saved by a forward-looking faith in Jesus Christ. It's always been that way. There's only one gospel throughout the Testaments that Christ ransoms his people. In the Old Testament, they look forward to it. You and I in the New Testament look back to it. But how are you a son of Abraham? By faith, by faith in Christ. The Apostle Paul is clear. There are not two classes of Christians, two kinds of the people of God. It's always by faith, forever by faith. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, you are a son of Abraham and all that that means. Verse 29, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise that all of the promises of an inheritance fall to those who have faith in Christ. We are the heirs of God. Again, as you suffer persecution in life, however it comes your way, wherever you might live, whether it be uh, the butt of jokes or humiliation or ridicule or maybe an economic uh, form of persecution or in the Middle East where it's violent and physical, you can know all along the way that you are beloved of God and that you are an heir of all of the promises of God, including everlasting life, world without end, everlasting salvation. Uh, this concept, again, wrestling with this very difficult interpretive problem of what label do we put on the people of God uh, is expressed in another way, Philippians uh, chapter 3. Verses 2 to 3, the Apostle Paul writes, Beware the dogs, beware the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Circumcision was a sign of Israel in the Old Testament. It was a sign of the Old Covenant. It marked you as, as uh, one who belonged to the nation. A physical sign. But again, it was always forward-looking that God would in grace circumcise your heart. It's never the physical sign. The physical saves nothing. Birth saves no one. It's the second birth. It's the cutting of the way of the flesh of the heart. The true circumcision, circumcision and that's exactly what Paul says in Philippians 3.3, 3, for we are the true circumcision who, work up in the spirit of, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. When Paul says to the church, we are the true circumcision, he's reflagging the church with a moniker of Israel. Again, I understand that's hotly debated, but I think that that's the true interpretation of the text. Another expression of this is found by the Apostle Peter. Again, I'm trying to wrestle with the concept of Israel in a very distant, forward-looking way as simply the people of God, uh, even though different monikers are placed 
upon that identity. First Peter chapter 2. And I'm only using a few texts to be sure. First Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Simply want to remind you that the Apostle Peter is going to take a number of monikers that applied to Israel in the Old Testament and place those monikers on the church. It's the true Israel. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He's calling us the people of God, a moniker, Old Testament, under the name of Israel. I happen to believe that the church is the true Israel because our hearts have been circumcised. God has given us new hearts and new minds. It's no longer ethnicity. It's always been by faith in Christ. Old Testament forward-looking, New Testament looking backward. But unlike idolaters, returning back to Isaiah chapter 45, we will not be humiliated. We will not be shamed. We will be marked out as those beloved by God. We will be segregated as those beloved by God. And everyone else will be humiliated and shamed. God will affect the final radical division of mankind into those whom he loves and all the rest that will be shamed. The, uh, the prophet is, uh, I think, alluding, Isaiah chapter 45, verse 17, uh, to one of his uh, earlier writings, uh, namely the 28th chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah, simply going back and uh, flushing out in a greater, more expanded way his earlier writings uh, Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 16. And there, Isaiah says, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. The Greek translation says, Ashamed. And I think, therefore, uh, that is the concept that we should uh, use to clarify what it means not to be disturbed. Uh, literally, it's, you don't have to get in a hurry. You don't have to be shaken. You don't have to be visibly moved. I think uh, the Greek translation is not be ashamed. It's very instructive because for us, the Apostle Paul quotes Isaiah 45. Again, probably an allusion to Isaiah chapter 28 and Romans chapter 9 in verse 33. Because the greater fulfillment, again, is in the church and those who hope in Christ, just as it was in the Old Testament, but now made all the clearer by the progressive revelation of the New Testament, which is superior to the Old in its clarity and understanding. Uh, again, Romans uh, chapter 9 in verse 33. Just as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a block of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed or not be ashamed. 
Romans chapter 10 and verse 11. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Again, you can see he is alluding to Isaiah 45 and Isaiah chapter 28. It has its greatest and most finest fulfillment in those who trust in Jesus. And whoever trusts in Jesus will in the final judgment be vindicated, not humiliated, not shamed, but rather gathered by the graciousness of God for an everlasting salvation world without end. Everyone else will be consigned to eternal humiliation and shame and rejected by God. The context of Romans 9 is a comparison of Jews who pursue law, righteousness, and stumble, and of Gentiles who pursue righteousness by faith. They will not be ashamed. Chapter 10 expands on this contrast. The Jews did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God, the end of which is Christ, and whoever believes in him will not be disappointed or not be ashamed. Paul confronts the concept of ethnicity head on in Romans 10 and verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. So the key now ceases to be ethnicity. It never was in the Old Testament. It's always Christ, but it's made all the more clear in the New Testament Again, it's certainly Christ, and all who are in him will be gathered to everlasting life. It's a promise of absolute vindication, an absolute victory. And everywhere the church goes in its journeying to heaven, it's persecuted, it's troubled, it's the receipt of insults, abuse of jokes, or whatever you've experienced in your Christian faith. In the end, God will fix it all. And all of the enemies of the church will either come salvifically or come to bow before the church and acknowledge to the church, you were right all along. Your God saves and saves alone. Again, uh, the prophet is uh, encouraging the people of God in their journey. The great thematic point of, of Isaiah 40 to 66 is the new exodus in the terminal point of the new exodus. And you and I are part of the great company of God in the last great exodus. And all along the way, we may be persecuted, but we know now how it ends in the end. We're vindicated, and our opponents acknowledge that we were right all along by trusting in Christ. There's a tension to that, I understand. Tension is waiting. But that's faith. It's a great reminder of this tension in Psalm 25, in verses 1 to 3. To thee, O Lord, I lift up my soul, O God, in thee I trust. Do not let me be ashamed, the psalmist says. Do not let my enemies exult over me. And then look at his answer in faith. Indeed, none of those who wait for thee will be ashamed. That's our promise, to wait for the Lord, to wait for the Lord for his day of vindication, when he fixes it all and makes everything right. In and of itself, that's a great theme of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. 
They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That's the theology of the last great exodus in our journey. By waiting upon the Lord, we will carry on until the time in which God will make it all right and vindicate the church as our enemies acknowledge that our God, Jesus Christ, is the only true everlasting Savior. It's the end state in which God will vindicate his people and give to them their inheritance. It's a great promise, is it not, of the already and the not yet. We're the sons of God, but we have yet to receive our inheritance, but that day will come. And it's part of the role of the church to encourage one another to continue the exodus, continue to march, continue to the journey, continue to move forward, waiting upon the Lord in the day of his choosing in which he will vindicate us all and our God will be acknowledged as the only God. It is the reminder that our God alone saves and when he saves, he saves forever and none are lost. That's how the text ends, verses 18 to 19. Uh, the prophet uses four great verbs. He created us, he formed us, he made us, and he established us to fill the earth. There's a purposefulness to our divine election. He's going to fill the earth. You and I will inherit the earth. The great acknowledgement that we are the heirs of God, beloved of God through Jesus Christ our Savior. I remind you, when God saves you, he saves you forever. Continue to march, continue to move forward, continue to wait for him, because in the day of his own choosing, he will make it all right. And during the wait, Jesus affirms his promise in the sacrament of the Lord's table. He is not unmindful that we, we grow weary, and sometimes we grow faint of heart. And so he comes in this wonderful sacrament to remind us of the constancy of his provision. One of the backgrounds of uh, the Lord's table is that of the children of Israel in the wilderness, that God fed them and watered them. In the New Testament, the reality of that becomes all the more prominent, does it not? When Jesus says, I'm the bread of heaven, I've come down as the bread of heaven to feed my people for their journey of the last great exodus. It's a great reminder. And so as we come to prepare our hearts for the Lord's table this morning, I am not unmindful that you are engaged in some enterprise in life for which you on occasion grow faint and weary. Fear not, the Lord is with you. The Lord is the bread of heaven. He comes to feed you and to give you himself to remind you that feeding upon him, you can run and not be weary, you can walk and not faint. The theology is captured for us uh, very beautifully by uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, in the 16th verse. Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? We feed upon the body he gives us spiritual strength, not because of the physical event of eating the bread, but apprehending the promise of who Christ is. As the bread of heaven, we apprehend it by faith. It's always by faith. We come to Christ by faith. We apprehend an understanding of the majesty of his promises by faith. 
and by faith he comes, the sacrament of the Lord's table as the bread of heaven that we might feed upon him for spiritual nourishment in our journey to the distant shore of an eternal salvation. I would ask you a couple of things to keep in mind at Grace Bible Church. We hope hold to an open a communion. If you're a Christian who's baptized and you're not under church discipline and you're not running away from that, but you know Christ, uh, then again, you are invited to come. At Grace Bible Church, we hold the element until which time all are served uh, as an expression that we will all eat together because we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and we eat together to express that we are the people of God. We are unified, therefore, as the people of God, and therefore we eat and feed upon him together as the people of God. Again, as the bread is passed, hold it until which time all are served, and then we will give thanks for the bread of heaven and eat together.